New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Heartbreak, the breakup of a love relationship, or any extreme loss, such as the loss of a parent or child, or even the loss of some precious possession like a home, can become a most profound and uncompromising teacher. How do we transform deep pain into wisdom? How do we bring ourselves back to tranquility, joy, vitality, and love when our lives are filled with despair, terror, grief, and rage? How does the breakup of a relationship differ from other losses? How do we cope with grief when it threatens to overwhelm us? We'll be exploring the answers to these and many other questions with our guest, Susan Piver. Susan Piver is a graduate of a Buddhist seminary and is a meditation teacher. She also conducts workshops on creativity and spirituality. She is a frequent guest on the media, including The Oprah Winfrey Show, Today, and The Tara Banks Show. She is a best-selling author of many books, including The Hard Questions, A Hundred Essential Questions to Ask Before You Say I Do, How Not to Be Afraid of Your Own Life, and The Wisdom of a Broken Heart, An Uncommon Guide to Healing, Insight, and Love. Join us for the next hour as we explore how we can recover from a deep injury to the heart with our guest, Susan Piver. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Susan, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's good to have you. Susan, uh, we need to go back to a little bit of your own story and what made you decide to write such a book. You have a story. Yes, I definitely do. My interest in the topic absolutely began with my own heartbreak um, from a lost relationship. And it was a relationship that I actually knew was not quite the right relationship for me. And so I would break up and get back together with this person. And then one time we broke up and he started going out with someone else. And I still can't quite explain why, but my world shattered. I mean... Like most people, I had had other relationships that had ended, and I had grieved and felt awful for weeks or months, but then I I would move on. But I did not move on from this one. And I remember one day, I was um, taking out the trash, because it was trash day, and I was crying and sweating, <laughs> because I lived in Texas and it was very hot. And as I'm pulling the trash down to the curb, I'm thinking, Why, how did this happen to me? how can I make this pain stop? 
if I hadn't said this or done that, everything would be okay. And I can't believe I probably caused this or no, this person is not worthy of me and on and on and on. And when I got to the curb, I sat down with the trash and I thought maybe I could get thrown away too because I didn't know if I could handle this. It was that devastating. Like you wanted to just kind of join the trash. I could be trash. Yeah. Right. Yes. Right. And I, yeah. if I got thrown in the back of a truck and carted away, that might be the best option at this point. Um, but then at that moment, I actually heard a voice, presumably inside my own head, that said, but wait a minute, nothing is happening right now. And I sort of looked around, and it was true. No one was torturing me. No one was laughing at me. No one was robbing my future. No one was there. It was trash day. And I realized at that moment that it was not my life that was causing me such pain, but my thoughts. And if I could not control them, but work with them somehow, I could heal my heart. And it, in this very moment, I had this experience of great spaciousness and peace and warmth. And it lasted for about 11 seconds. <laughs> and then it all came rushing back, but I never forgot that. However, it wasn't until I became a Buddhist practitioner that I came to more of an understanding of, A, what the heartbreak was about, and B, what this moment of space meant. You know, you, you talk in the book about how this experience of a heartbreak and that opening, it's not a psychological process. It's actually a spiritual process. So say something about that. Tell us about that. That's a fantastic point. It's not a strategy. It's not something you think, hey, I've heard that there's actually nothing happening because I've read Dharma books. Let me look for this nothing. It was a spontaneous arising. And when your heart is broken, your life is full of such spontaneous arisings. They may not be about peace, but you can feel everything as if it was happening to you. Your own pain, certainly, but the pain of others and also their joys. So you react, you respond to the world around you without thought. And it's an actually a very precious experience if you can learn to stabilize your heart in this open space, um, you notice that these moments are happening all the time. And exactly as you say, this is not a strategy. This is not something you think about. Your heart blossoms open to whoever and whatever is around you. And in wisdom tradition, I don't have to tell you, this is considered an extremely precious and fortunate state. So in our world, however, it's not considered that. But you just switch a little bit in your chair, you can see it that way too. No, no, it doesn't feel that way. But you um, also talk about how there's a difference, and you, you're very clear about the difference between sadness and depression. So what is that difference? Yes, this was a really wonderful thing I learned, actually, from reading an interview with Gloria Steinem, where she was being uh, asked about the death of her husband, who she'd been married to for, for a short time, and the interviewer said, well, you must be quite depressed. And I'm paraphrasing her answer. She said, I'm not depressed, I'm sad. When you're depressed, nothing has any meaning. And when you're sad, everything does. That was a pith transmission to me and an exact description of the difference between this deadening state where you turn away 
from everything you feel with the effort, with the intention of escaping it, and what happens when you turn towards the passion and intensity and emotion and humanity of your own heart. It is sad, and everything takes on meaning, not because you're making it up, but because you're seeing it clearly for the first time. Uh, and I know you give an example in, in your book that you thought, okay, everything's going well, and you have this dinner that you've planned to go to this restaurant, and and what happens? <laughs> yeah, I uh, I thought, oh, yeah, I think I'm getting over this. It's pretty good. I'm, i got good friends. It's an awesome restaurant. And then um, the waitress brought over some um, jalapeno cornbread, and... It destroyed my mind <laughs> because suddenly I was like, oh, my God, he loved jalapeno cornbread. And it was just the sight of that piece of bread that caused me to just burst into tears. And I, I barely made it to the ladies' room before I, I actually burst into tears. And I thought, this is not so good if a piece of bread can you know, upset my world like this. I think I have a little more work to do. But in some ways, I know I was talking just the other day with a good friend and she her her daughter has cut her out of her life mm. and therefore you know she it's hard to be around her granddaughter and this is really really a tough time and that is a kind of heart, i mean it is a heartbreak of of a big order too and uh, i was i was reading your book and i was reflecting to my friend oh you are so vital right now because she was just like that. Everything was so open to her. She was feeling pain, sadness, but life was vivid. So talk about that yes, vividness. It is a very creative state. It, I'm not saying it feels good. And I'm not saying you can go, oh, this is creative, so it's fine. It, it it hurts. The pain is real. But it it is extremely creative as i said it's extremely raw it's human it's earthy it's profound heartbreak is the biggest bs meter you're ever going to meet you see the truth of who is valuable to you in your life who can be there with you you see the truth of your activities which ones are actually worth your time and which ones aren't it's actually an extraordinary opening and everything you see for what it is. So, again, I just can't help but keep reiterating that it's not, that's not meant to feel good. It does not feel good, mm -hmm. but it is precious nonetheless. It's, it, it, some of us, like when we have such a loss in that way, we have strategies. We move away from it in, in negative ways, like through addictions. Mm -hmm. And I'd love for you to talk about that. And But we also, you point out, we move away from them in more positive ways, but nevertheless still moving away from it. Mm -hmm. So so speak about that. Mm -hmm. Well, I really noticed when I was writing this book that there are two kinds of breakup books out there. And they're mostly aimed at women, so that's why I'm going to use the examples I'm using. And the first is what I like to call, you go, girl. You know, it's the kind of book that says, you were too awesome for that person and you need to go out and forget about it and cute haircut and cocktails and that's not terrible advice uh, that's not bad okay you could try that it's not going to help that much but it's not bad advice the other kind though I think is considered good advice but it's actually very harmful advice in my opinion and that's the school of book that says there's something wrong with you and you drew this experience to yourself by having an unhealed wound from childhood that you need to resolve or by thinking the wrong thoughts 
And if you could only think the right thoughts, you would never have to suffer pain again. And I actually think that's cruel and a hoax and claustrophobic and you call terrible. It, you call it the cult of positivity. That's right. And and this is so important. This is such an important point, I believe, mm-hmm. because we we do get this pressure that that if we allow ourselves to feel sad, we're drawing in more sadness to us and more negative stuff to us. Mm-hmm. The cult of positivity is real, and it is a cult. It brainwashes you into thinking that life should have no pain. And if you're experiencing it, someone has messed up, and it's probably you. And heads need to roll when you need to fix this. So, but, you know, from studying the Dharma and just common sense tells you that aggression is the sense of wanting things to be not the way they are. This has to change. It is not the way I want it to be. That's so aggression. So we attack it. So we attack it. Exactly. We attack it. And sometimes it's for with bad weapons like addiction or, you know, uh, demeaning things or self low self-esteem. Sometimes it's from so-called positive things, as you mentioned, like therapy and examining your childhood and, um, you know, going on spiritual quests, all of which can be very good. If the underlying intention is to find another, find a way to love again, but if the underlying intention is to find a way to never feel pain again, then it is an act of aggression that is going to backfire. And the only option at this point is to relax. Relax meaning allow. That's the most relaxing thing a person can do. Your feelings to be as they are and to see what happens next. We'll talk more about that in just one moment. I'm with Susan Piver, and she is the author of The Wisdom of a Broken Heart, An Uncommon Guide to Healing, Insight, and Love. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Susan Piver, and we were talking about aggression, we were talking about uh, the ways that we kind of move ourselves away from feeling the feelings, and you had just said something about being being able to feel the feelings, relax into the feelings, and some of the other ways that we respond to, to heartbreak, uh, strong emotions, is withdrawal and compliance, and... Can you talk a little bit about those two ways? There's aggression, withdrawal, compliance. Yes. I actually uh, learned about this from the work of Karen Horney, the, I guess, turn-of-the-century German psychoanalyst. I'm turn-of-the-last-century. And uh, she identified three neurotic patterns for responding to stress. Some people move against 
what is troubling them. They fight it, which is the aggression part. Some people move towards what is um, troubling them to pacify it and make friends with it and sort of try to calm the situation down. And the third way, and this is my way, by the way, is to move away. You move away. You avoid what is troubling you. And one of, one of those poisons is your favorite. Mm-hmm. And the second one is your second favorite. And the third one you do, and you're not quite aware that you're doing it. Um, but those are the three ways that people respond to heartbreak, too, as with any kind of stress. Some people move against it, like, I'm going to read every self-help book. I'm going to go to therapy nine times a week. And I'm going to, every time I have a negative thought, I'm going to swat it with a tennis racket until it goes away. And I only have good thoughts left. That's aggression, as we talked about. Some people move towards it. Like, okay, well, I'm going to try to get whatever I lost to still love me again, or I'm going to try to get some other love to sort of take the place as quickly as possible. Is this also a place where we want to make meaning out of everything? Mm. Could that could that be something to do with it, that we want to, I'm feeling so much pain, it's got to mean something? And That is a really good question, a really good point. And yes... Trying to seek meaning, because there and there is meaning. This is the tricky part. Mm-hmm. It is meaningful. But trying to construct a meaning in order to stop feeling the pain is not quite the meaning that we're looking for. It's not quite on the yeah. dot yeah. of what is actually happening. And it's, it's actually a way of obscuring the meaning. Mm-hmm. When you try to interpret, well, you know, I read this book and it says that my feelings mean that. And so right. the strategy is I have to stop eating dairy or whatever it is that people say you need to do. So that's a kind of psychological approach in some ways or, or a mental approach. Yeah, it, it's a psychological approach, I think, is the right phrase. And there's value in it. But it's not the end. Because you say, again, you say, if it's moving you away from feeling it, mm-hmm. that's that's the whole key is what you're... And what about compliance? What's that like? Well, compliance in this case means you give up. Oh. You just... No, compliance is when you move towards and try to make friends. Avoidance is when you just... You give up. Yeah. You you either don't feel anything because you, you somehow have convinced yourself, oh, this doesn't really hurt. Or you just spend, you know, nine hours on the couch in your sweatpants, not... You know, right. thinking of spacing out. Spacing out is the is an avoidance. And that's a kind of depression then. It it's actually I think worse than depression. It's numbness mm-hmm. where you don't even know you're depressed. And if someone asked you how you felt, you would go, I'm probably okay. Like you don't know. You don't even know. You're disconnected yeah. from yourself. But the strategy that you say is the best, is the most effective, you say, is experience it. Yes. The fourth option, besides against, away, and towards, is to lean into it, to open to what your actual experience is by allowing your feelings to simply be present without an agenda and without an attempt to manipulate them. This is actually called relaxing, mm-hmm. when you allow things to be as they are, and the um, the critical description of this process was made by the American Buddhist nun Pema Chodron, who said in one of her books, the best way to relate to strong emotion is to feel the feelings and drop the story. And this is a brilliant statement. And It's so simple, a statement. It's elegant, isn't it? Exactly. It's elegant and it's brilliant because it's so pithy. It's exactly right. You need no more instruction than that. 
I mean, it's not easy to do, but that is a simple statement that is absolutely correct. So feel the feeling. I personally don't know how to do that without a meditative practice of some kind. So in in my book and in my life and with my friends and in my teaching, I strongly urge a basic breath awareness meditation called shamatha or the practice of tranquility as a way of not driving your evil thoughts away and not tying your pain up with a bow, but instead of allowing it to be there and witnessing it, not from a detached point of view, but but from a fully experiential point of view, but you allow it to rush through you more like a stream than, you know, anything else. You Like a stream rushing by, you see it, you can't stop the stream, you don't try. But you feel it, you enter it, you walk into it, and this is the advice that no one gives you, is turn towards it, look it right in the eye, sit down with your heartache, because you cannot game it. You can't game heartbreak. So all you can do is sit and accompany yourself as you would a beloved friend until things change, and they will. That's interesting. You And you talk about how that kind of befriending and being kind to it, being, you know, inviting it in is a, a warrior's stance, a spiritual warrior's stance, that it is not easy and it is actually a very um, warrior-like thing to do. I can't imagine anything more courageous than saying, I am going to open to what is most painful to me, not as an wa- act of wallowing or letting it defeat me, but just to see it, just to look it in the face, to know it. That is way more courageous and an act of spiritual warriorship than um, never feeling bad or always feeling like invincible. To open to your tenderness, to your fragility, to your genuine vulnerability, which is actually true, is the most beautiful and courageous act that I can ever imagine doing myself. And P.S., who doesn't want to be loved by someone like that? Someone who can stand in their vulnerability, can stand with you in yours. And this makes you a lover of like the highest order in my mind. You know, most people, when they say they're looking for love, usually means something like, I'm looking for safety. I'm looking for someone to shield me. I'm looking for something to protect me from what's painful. Love is the least safe thing there is. It's fierce. You can't domesticate it. It's wild. When you find it, you should rejoice. When you lose it, you should grieve. My husband and I call it the conscious crucible. (laughs) (laughs) That's a beautiful phrase. I call it the noble challenge. The noble challenge, yes, yes. You know, you have a process early on in the book, and um, and I I took the process where you had divide a sheet into two places, and, and you write down what your concerns are, and then believe I hope I'm not mixing this up with somebody else but okay. and then you then you 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 look into your body and say where does that trigger me in my body what where do I feel the sensation of that and that's what you go for to intensify that sensation am I remembering that correctly yes you are yeah. yes so when you turn towards your emotion it can be very confusing like what does that mean So the best place to start, and in a sense, the alpha and omega of how to start and end, is with your own body. 
So if you feel whatever it is you're feeling, to connect with it, you find it in your own being. That's not in outer space. That's your body. So sometimes you may feel constricted in your chest. You may feel that your head is completely separated from your body. You may feel shortness of breath. You may feel like a lead stone, whatever it might be. But connect with that as the place to begin. And then, this sounds very counterintuitive, but the challenge here, the advice here, is to not turn away from it again, but to actually intensify it. Intensify, 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 let go, and do it again. And this, I, I cannot explain to you why this is so powerful, but you, first of all, you assume the seat of um, authority, in a sense, with, in relation to your feelings, and you, you, like, you almost fan the flame, and then you let go. You know, it's like holding your breath, holding your breath, holding your breath, breathing. All these good things start to rush Mm -hmm. through you. So you can do that with your feelings. Feelings are very like the undiscovered frontier, and they're um, very interesting to work with. In fact, as you were describing it, I was imagining it was the breakup of of the dam, so to speak, like like if we don't do that, if we don't face it, and in the in, in what you were saying, intensify it. it, it like causes a flow to happen. Then once you let go, if you really intensify it, then the flow starts and it's breaking up a dam. Exactly. Like in yoga class, sometimes the teacher says, you know, bring your shoulders up to your ears and hold them, hold them, hold them, and then let them let them drop. Mm-hmm. And it's that same exact principle, but just applied to your inner world of holding, 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 letting go. Fresh blood, in the emotional sense, starts to flow. Going back to befriending this and that that gentle uh, friendship and kindness to ourselves, you you also talk about, and I'm reminded of Sultram Alioni, uh, the Lama, um, whom we've also interviewed, uh, feeding your demons. Mm. Uh, so, what do you have to say about like in, that's also that inviting in? Uh, your demons. I, I love that book. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great book, and I have enormous respect for that process, which is thousands of years old. It, it's it's a very powerful practice, and in my book, I talk about something kind of similar, but I called it "Give your de- in, Give your demons a dinner party." Yeah. <laughs> which is where you you sort of you take the seat at the head of the table. You obviously do this in your imagination, and you invite your shame, your rage, and you try to picture them, what they might look like, your disconnection, your childhood wounds, and you sort of ask them in turn to speak, what do you have to say to me? Not, I want to argue you out of it, but what exactly are you trying to say to me? And after each one finishes, you sort of you know, thank them. Yes, okay, thank you very much. But again, you assume the seat of authority in relation to your inner world without denying any piece of it without wallowing in any piece of it, by recognizing it and sort of saying, okay, I am looking at my life right now. So how does this actually help then? Mm-hmm. How do, how, what's, what's the alchemical help that that provides? Well, um, it creates what in the science of alchemy was called volatility. So, you know, the ancient science of alchemy was trying to turn lead into gold or a non-precious substance into a precious substance. And the first step in the alchemical process was to make the base substance volatile. 
somehow, you know, change it into something malleable. Like if it's lead, maybe you try to turn it into dust or something. And then you can work with it. It's unbound from its form. So the hope for result, so to speak, or um, outcome of this kind of emotional work is to create a state of sacred vulnerability where you let your feelings shake, rattle, and roll. And then you can walk in with techniques like these or others you might find to reshape your pain into something more beautiful. I'm here with Susan Piver, and we're talking about heartbreak and how we can transform it. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Susan Piver, and we're speaking about betrayal and heartbreak and sadness uh, and how to deal with these strong emotions. Um, if you'd like to be in touch with Susan and know her schedule and her work, uh, you can go and blog. You can go to her website, susanpiver.com. That's Susan, S-U-S-A-N, Piver, P is in Peter, I-V is in Victor, E-R.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Susan, you suggest that people keep what you call a heartbreak journal. So tell us, what is that? Mm-hmm. It's a way of sort of keeping track of your the, your heart. And I actually suggest certain questions in the book that you can start out with because some people don't like to just look at a blank piece of paper, understandably. So that what I feel most now is this and what I miss most is that. But beyond that, I suggest that you actually observe your heartbreak as closely as possible throughout the day and try to notice, like, I heard this song and it was this phrase in that song that made me cry. Or I talked to this friend and they told me... They gave me this kind of reaction. They didn't even say anything. They just had this kind of look on their face. And that brought me some peace, just to keep track as closely as possible of what is affecting you for better and for worse. Not to keep a log of, I'm getting better, 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 but just what is actually happening. Because the the quality of discriminating awareness is very precious here. And it's not just a a pile of icky going on inside of you that you want to try to get away from, but very interesting things are happening in your mind and in your heart. And so the more awareness you can bring to it, the better. You know, in my Buddhist lineage, we're taught about threefold logic, which is the progress, how everything progresses. There's a ground, there's a path, and there's a fruition. With heartbreak, the ground is pain. That's where you stand. The path is awareness. The more awareness you can shine on it, the better. And the fruition is love. Because as you work with your heartbreak and bring awareness to it, you see how loving you are, how much you want love, how much you feel love, and you develop a whole different relationship with it. I'm, that's, that's beautiful. And I'm reminded of some analogy that you use in, in your book, I think you're talking about the tranquility um, meditation, and you use the analogy of a, of a 
globe, a snow globe. So tell us mm-hmm. that analogy. With pleasure. Um, when you practice meditation, when you first sit down, you think, oh, I have so many thoughts. This is a big problem. It's not. It's not a problem. Meditation is not about getting rid of thoughts. That's a big hoax, misconception. Instead, it's about letting them sort of settle on their own. And as you focus on your breath and watch your thoughts rise and fall, because they all rise and they all fall, it it has the quality of like a snow globe. Your brain, you're used to shaking it up all day long, and things are swirling around in there like crazily. Meditation is the act of putting the snow globe down. And one by one, your thoughts settle to the ground and dissolve into the ground until all that's left is clarity and you can actually see where you are. So the practice of meditation is this act of generating clarity. That's why often meditation is called the practice of insight. It's not insight because you think of exciting, cool things. It's insight because you quiet your mind and wisdom naturally arises. But you're not forcing your mind to be quiet. It's it's a very gentle process. Mm-hmm. And in the book, you have really detail, a beautiful detail, very simple, very uh, clear way of doing this, of a daily practice, and I, I very much enjoyed it. It, it, it's, it. You don't have to belong to any religion. You don't have to be Buddhist. You don't have to do any of that, but it's just a very clear practice, daily practice, and I, I totally appreciated that. And then you have, towards the end of the book, uh, another practice, uh, the loving-kindness practice, which we'll get into in, in a moment. But first, I, I want to talk about betrayal because mm-hmm. uh, it's you quote Jean Jean Houston as talking about how betrayal is um, the greatest agent of the sacred, uh, and that's a tough one because betrayal that's a that's that really stands by itself, doesn't it? It's it's a tough one for humans. I think it may be the worst. And my own experience of heartbreak started to turn around when I read that quote. It's from the book called The Path to the Beloved, I believe. And that quote stopped my mind. And I started to realize I am in sacred territory. It hurts, but it's sacred. So, and I've thought about it now for quite a long time. It's a contemplation for me. And one of the reasons I think betrayal is an agent of the sacred is because it so firmly shakes your foundation. It demolishes your stories about who you are, about what you thought your life was going to be like, about the ability to lean on other people unquestioningly, you are suddenly groundless when you are betrayed. And in wisdom tradition, that state of groundlessness is considered fortunate because you're no longer blinded by your illusions about what you think is going to happen or who you think you are. And all that is left in this groundless state is present awareness. Now, is that being in that state of volatility that you were talking about earlier? Absolutely. I think nothing nothing engenders the state of sacred volatility as quickly and thoroughly as betrayal. Because one minute your life is okay, and the next it isn't. So, like it or not, you have to find a way to... Um, establish your presence in this difficult situation and you know you you cannot go back you cannot go back to believing the things that you thought were true and you don't know where to go forward to 
you don't know what your life is going to be like anymore. So you're in between. You're in the state of groundlessness, and in the state of groundlessness, all things are possible. You know, uh, you you also mention in your book how love often, when it's it's in that state of betrayal, that not love doesn't die because people don't love each other anymore, but it's like the projection on each other of who we are actually gets disrupted. Can you talk about that? Yes. This is a very tragic thing, you know. And it happens to all of us. I'm we right all, in there. We were, I'm in there, too. I, I do it every day. Um, the one you fall in love, it's one thing. But actually, the more you love and the more entrenched you become in a relationship— the more necessary you find it to get the, your other this other person to play a role in your movie of what you think life should look like. And when they don't, you get very upset. So they cease slowly but surely to become who they are, who you saw them as in the beginning, and become instead a kind of device in your own inner drama. And that's actually the opposite of love. It's the opposite of love. So... What I try to do all the time is to not just try not to put my projections of what I think love is supposed to look like onto my husband, but to try to turn off the projector altogether and to instead be together and see what happens from day to day, from moment to moment. It's it's a really intense practice. And, you know, I try to practice compassion in my spiritual life and blah, 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 but the hardest person to practice it on is the people, is my husband, the person I already love. Because I'm so invested in him making me happy that when he doesn't, it sort of shakes me up a lot and I get upset with him. This is where where your book is also good for those of us in a very long-term relationship. Yours is now 10 years Mm -hmm. old. Mine is 37 years old. Mm -hmm. And so it's a constant having to pull back that projection uh, constantly it, it it never it never ceases it it it's something that just went like like dishes in the in in the kitchen they they just build up if you don't clean if you don't wash them it is a really interesting thing in in my household we call it the noble challenge mm. long term love mm. is a noble challenge mm-hmm. and my personal experience is it's the day to day experience of seeding ground without being a wuss or a martyr or, you know, hurting myself. Um, but to seed my ground, of it doesn't have to be the way I think it should be. And in some ways, Justine, marriage or long-term relationship is the most heartbreaking situation of all. And it's not just because there are the daily disappointments or what have you that Eventually, you go, okay, that's another disappointment, no big deal. Also, there's this profound deepening intimacy and blah, blah, blah. Um, But in a sense, the more you love, the more heartbreaking it is, because this is my experience anyway, the the more I love the person I live with, the more um, presently I feel the moment of our parting. And as much as I try to talk myself out of that, I can't. I know that someday this relationship will end, and the more precious he becomes to me, the more sharply I feel that. That is heartbreak. That, to me, is 
why most relationships tend not to work. Because you get to a certain pro- in a pro- certain proximity to another person, and then you, out of the corner of your eye, whether you know it or not, you see that. And it is too painful to bear. Exactly. I remember years ago someone telling me, well, you and Michael will not be together someday. And I was so happy. I said, what are you talking about? I mean, I was right in the middle of just like, just just loving, loving our relationship and can't imagine that that we would never be together. And he said, well, someday one of you is going to die. And I hadn't, I that, that, as you say, it was way beyond the corner of my eye at that point. I didn't even want to think about it. But that was the first time that I realized, oh, what you say is absolutely true, that no matter what, there is that presence of that it will end someday. And if we protect ourselves from it too much, then we're not in that intimacy. This is the warrior's journey right here at this exact juncture. You can't turn away from that because to turn away from that is to turn away from this person. Are you going to shut your heart to them? No, you don't want to. Are But can you open to them further knowing that this precious thing, this precious person is going to be gone from your life or you from their life at some point. This is why in my lineage <laughs> and many other lineages, they say that to be a spiritual warrior, you must have a broken heart. Otherwise, your warriorship is untrustworthy. And this is exactly why I think that is true. Because when you love, you either can harden yourself to the mm-hmm. moment of parting or open further to the person that you love knowing that this is in store, that to me is a warrior. And, you know, in a sense, and I I hate to tell this to people when I teach about the wisdom of heartbreak, but it's true, there is no relationship that will not end in heartbreak. So on one hand, that's a big bummer. On the other hand, you can relax because this is what's going to happen. And in the meantime, what do you do? That's your path. That's your path. Uh, we'll talk more about this in just one moment. I'm here with Susan Piver, and she's the author of The Wisdom of a Broken Heart, An Uncommon Guide to Healing, Insight, and Love. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Susan Piver. She's the author of The Wisdom of a Broken Heart, An Uncommon Guide to Healing, Inside, and Love. Susan, you talk about how 
offering love is is a way through rather than always trying to get love. So speak about that. Yes. Um, well, if you look at the books on the bookshelf in the self-help section about love, you see that all of them, and I'm not exaggerating, are about how to get it. And with the assumption that, okay, I'm going to get love, then I'm going to be able to give it. None of them are about how to give love. When I realized that, I was like, that is so weird. None of them are about how to give it. Because there is a way to have love in your life all the time, every day. You don't have to wait for someone to give it to you. You can always give it. And giving it means simply this, connecting with your own experience in the moment, opening your heart to it and what is around you, and then offering what arises. Sometimes it's a kind word. Sometimes it's a it's an embrace. Sometimes it's a walking away is the loving thing to do. But you can. There is no circumstance in life where you cannot offer love. By this definition, and this is the secret healing power for a broken heart: is to stop waiting for someone to give you love, and instead to immediately begin giving it in ways large and small as much as possible. So that's that's powerful. Uh, and can you give examples, like as we're going through our days? So if we're feeling tremendous grief, how how can we actually practice this then? Mm-hmm. Well, the, it begins with turning your attention a little bit away from yourself and towards who and what is around you. So some days you can do that easily, and in, in which case, if you see a coworker struggling with something. You can just offer to help them or, or at least acknowledge, oh, I see you're having a problem. I, you know, if there's anything that can help, let me know. The very basic things. If someone you know is going through what you're going through, a broken heart, you can call them and offer to talk to them about what they're going through without talking about what you're going mm-hmm. through. You know, you can do the, the traditional things, volunteering to help at a charity, that kind of thing. But if you aren't even capable, and it's understandable that some days you're not, of that kind of overt action, you can just lie on your bed and think about people you love and people that love you and wish them well. Mm-hmm. Wish, send your love to them from that place. That takes me to the loving kindness practice. And I'd love for you to talk about that practice. It's so profound. It is profound. And this is the practice that teaches you how to stabilize your heart in the open state. It's the direct route. And in this practice, which is traditional and thousands of years old, you offer loving kindness by wishing good things first for yourself, which is not so easy for most people. No, the, actually, that's not an easy act. We're not taught in this culture to, to do that. That seems selfish and self-centered. And But to start with that is very interesting. Why to start with that? Well, I, my, I don't know, but my theory is that in ancient days when this practice originated, it was not weird to think of people wishing themselves well. There were, weren't these self-esteem issues. And, you know, I don't think there is a word for low for insecurity, low self-esteem in Tibetan. I remember hearing a story about that, about the Dalai Lama. Um, So I think it was more natural when the practice was first developed, but in our modern age, it's not so easy. However, you start there, and then you think of someone you love. Your heart blossoms open to them. You you know you wish them well, and you send your loving thoughts to them. And if you can't even think of someone you love, it might be your dog or your cat or something. It might be... That's real love. Yeah. 
that's real love. It could be someone you used to love. It could be someone you heard of in public life that you admire and love. It could be your pet. Um, and then you take that same wish and you imagine, you think of a stranger, someone who you know, but you don't really have any feelings towards them. But you understand that just like you and your loved one, this person also wants to be happy and you wish them well. So this might be someone that you have seen several times in the checkout stand of a grocery store or, or something like that. I mean, someone that you've kind of come across, but you've not really had any relationship with them. Exactly. It's a, a brief encounter. Yeah, it's someone you can basically picture, but you don't really have any positive or negative feelings about them. But you can sort of picture them, the person you buy coffee from, the person who's always on the bus with you when you go to work. Um, and then you take that same ability to wish, because you see, oh, I can wish, I can offer loving kindness to people I don't even know. Then you think of what's traditionally called the enemy, someone who has hurt you. It can be the person who broke your heart. It can be someone else. And you also offer them loving kindness without letting them off the hook, without forgiving them, without trying to for- explain what they did. You still wish them well. Underneath their weird actions are some effort to be happy. So you wish them that happiness, and you see that you can do this even for people you don't like. This is a very powerful practice. You see how big your heart is and how much bigger it is than what you now call broken. And the practice ends with wishing wishing all beings well. And surprisingly, or at least it was surprising to me, your heart is that big. You can wish all beings well. Also in the book, I talk about doing loving-kindness practice specifically for the one who broke your heart and putting them in each position as a loved one, as a stranger, because they're always strangers to you, and as an enemy. And that's a very potent way of working with your feelings of rage or disappointment or sadness is to do loving-kindness practice for them. Now, it's not going to just totally heal your heart doing this once. This is, what do you suggest in that way? I suggest that you do it as often as possible. And and when you're in the throes, you know, to do it every day is really wonderful. But you can also do it, you don't have to do a formal practice of loving kindness. When pain arises in your mind, you're at work or you're at the gym or whatever, you can flash loving kindness to to that person who broke your heart. Just I wish you well. As you're walking down the street, you can flash loving kindness to the people you pass. Genuinely, I wish you well. I wish you well. This is very silly, but sometimes when I watch the credits screen from a movie, scroll, I wish each name well. I wish you well. I wish you well. You can flash this care all the time. I I love that practice because what it says to me is if we do our practice, if we actually take the time each day to do our meditation practice, we've, we've in some way stabilized it, in some way we, we, we're, we're used to it. We, even though we're doing it in front of our, our maybe little altar space or whatever, it, we can flash on it then. We can use it at another time during the day. I thought that that, that practice was just brilliant. Yeah, so to say something more about how we can use that. Yes, well, it's called a practice. So what are you practicing for? You're practicing to be able to do it when you're not on the cushion. So to start doing that, like if if I said to you right now or any of the listeners, what does it feel like when you meditate? Like what is the effect for people who have a practice? In order to answer that question, you have to flash on the mind of meditation. You have to call it up. 
And that is a meditation. And you can flash repeatedly on the mind of meditation within yourself throughout the day. And the more you do it, the stronger that practice becomes. Similarly, as I mentioned, you can flash loving kindness, not in a sappy, sissy kind of way, but in a genuine lover kind of way throughout the day to whoever you encounter, whomever. Let's talk about a little bit about the root of love. What is the root of love? What is that root that we're really looking for or, or experiencing when we really experience love? Well, I can tell you my own experience, and that is a deep longing to be met, to be seen, to be taken in. And I think when you fall in love, it's because you sense that possibility with this other person. They can see me. You have flashes of that. And when you lose that relationship, if you do, what is so painful is not losing the good times you shared or your home or friends or whatever it might be, but the possibility of more of those moments of embrace and intimacy. So one thing I write about in the book is that those moments of intimacy are happening all the time. And if you open your eyes, you see them. And it may not be with this person, but it happens when you you know, overhear a conversation and you look at someone else and they think it's funny too and your eyes click and you're like, I know what you're thinking. Or you hear a piece of music that you feel like expresses your state of soul precisely. That's a moment of intimacy. That's a moment of being met. So when you tune into such moments, you see that the world is trying to touch you all the time. And that intimacy is always present. And by the way, when you grieve lost love, you grieve the loss of such moments. And the thing is, even if that person was still in your life, those moments would still be gone. So that's, to, I think, an important thing to recognize, that A, what was is gone, and B, such moments are arising constantly. Exactly, exactly. So when um, we are... When we're feeling all this, it's really about attention. And and you'd quote John Tarrant as saying, attention is the most basic form of love. So we do have a choice, don't we, there, of it with our attention. I love that. I love that quote. And it ends with, through it, we are blessed and are blessed. And when you think about it, what is love without attention? It is the basic unit of love. First you turn your attention to someone. Without that, what are you loving? So you can turn your attention to whatever is happening within you and around you, and it is a form of love. You can cultivate the ability to pay attention and focus attention consciously. That's the practice of meditation. That's what it teaches yes. you to do. Yes. Susan, I want to thank you for being with us today. This has been my pleasure having you. It has been my pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Susan Piver. She is the author of The Wisdom of a Broken Heart, An Uncommon Guide to Healing, Inside, and Love. If you'd like to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, susanpiver.com. That's uh, spelled Piver. P is in Peter, I-V is in Victor, E-R, susanpiver.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, 
newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3341. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.